Before we get started with the show, we wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. For as little as $2 a month, so less than a cup of coffee, you can help us pay our producers and our social media editor and basically keep the podcast going. If you contribute to Always Take Notes on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, notably a sheaf of successful magazine pitches from myself and Rachel and former co-hosts and friends of the show, uh, which is really useful for any aspiring writer. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist Anne Enright. We spoke to Anne about her experience of creative writing programmes, her place in the Irish tradition and her refusal to write at a desk. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Anne to Always Take Notes. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. I thought we could kick off with your time at uh, the University of East Anglia. We we interviewed uh, Louise Doughty recently, who was one of your classmates. Um, she said that the experience was great because it was the first time that it was she was treated properly as a writer and had people critiquing her work. You had a sort of altogether different experience. Why, why was that? Well, actually, my experience at UEA was all the better for Louise Doughty, who is so cheerful and nice um, and very kind um, uh, for, for, for the uh, duration of the MA as were my other fellow students. Um, I don't know whether I um, needed, I suppose, validating as a writer one way or the other, because I, I had a kind of scratching away in my garret sort of kind of feeling about the whole business already. So um, I found I was up against, uh, the problem that I was up against actually was my own grandiosity. I, I set sail to UEA in order to be a writer and uh, I had no doubts that that was what was going to happen and I was embarking on a great lifetime adventure. Um, I stood in the prow of the boat, you know, the ferry going over <laughs> with my um, little typewriter, my little electronic, my little electric typewriter. Um, and I, I stumbled over my own ambition, I suppose you could say, in that I didn't realise that I had to write particular pages and particular paragraphs and sentences. I didn't realise that you run the marathon, let alone you know, win the marathon step by step, and that a book is written word by word. I embarked on a huge, hugely overambitious uh, novel, which is set in three different sort of time... And, and three languages, right? Or is well, that... when I say three languages, there was um, the one was set in sort of restoration dialogue, some of which was 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 quite fruity and nice, actually. <laughs> Pretty Sarah. There was an amount of that. There was a very clean, epic, um, stony sort of Greek landscape as well. Um, and then there was a contemporary piece which didn't really find itself I wouldn't I wouldn't mind going back to it actually um, an, an amount of it went into actress it was it was Shakespearean in its ab, in its ab ovum, ab, in its seed in its its egg was Shakespearean from Troilus and Cressida hence the Greek <laughs> and now you know you find that a number of uh, writers have been cheerfully writing Troy over and over again and it has come back a bit. I don't know how many years ago I was in UEA, but that was one of the things I was doing then. I was very taken by, sorry, I was very taken by Cassandra, by Christa Wolf, um, 
who turned out to be not as good an egg as we thought she was back in the day. But those little Virago books, you know, not little, those green, solid fucking Virago books were among the, on my shelf at the time. Yeah, we heard Ale Alexandra Pringle on, who told us all about the kind of uh, tempestuous birth of Virago and, and things, which was which was good. I was wondering if we could ask a bit of a question about your writing routine, both when you were at UEA and how it's how it's evolved since then. Because Rachel and I both enjoyed this piece in the Guardian, your your writer's day. But I was slightly sceptical because we've had a number of people on the show, very accomplished writers in all sorts of genres, who have claimed that you know they're very disorganised or that you know it's all sort of happened by accident and stuff like that. Um, and I often wonder whether you know that disguises a bit of the the hard work and the kind of craft and graft that goes into it. I mean, is that is is that is was that was that Guardian Talk piece? me through why you didn't believe my piece in the Guardian first. <laughs> I said I got up and I didn't do anything until three o'clock. I mean, yeah. Um, what what time is it now? Sixteen thirteen. Actually, I did a bit of work today. That's my routine. <laughs> That's my routine right there. I did a bit of work today. What did you do? I picked away. <laughs> did, do I sound a bit aggressive? I don't have a routine. It sounds like a song and dance routine. And I wish beyond yearning that I did have a goddamn routine. I, 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 I fall asleep regularly thinking in the morning I will do two hours straight on waking. And then, of course, there's distractions. So, no, but I do don't you, have a routine, nor do I stop writing. I but do you sit routine. at a desk for a certain sort of amount of time a day and either work on other stuff or sort of wait for inspiration to strike? I never start and I never stop. I do not possess a desk. I never sit in a chair. I do not believe in inspiration. So I'm sorry for rejecting every single word in your question. <laughs> that's, that's quite all right. Is, is, I, I, I think chairs are evil. How, how, do you, how do you literally support yourself? Or do, you, yeah. do, you, do you stand? No, I don't stand. I should stand, actually. I've got a good mantelpiece that's just inviting me to stand at it with my laptop. No, I, uh, I lull. Um, or I, you know, I, there are pillows. There are, I have a sofa. I have actually got, you know, quite a broad sofa that you can sit cross-legged on. Um, and so I sit cross-legged or I lull. I mean, yeah. I just, whatever. But a desk, a desk... A desk is a bit like work, isn't it? I mean, when you're, uh, you know, messing, you're not really at a desk, are you? If, if to phrase it another way, with with actress, with your most recent book, if if one was to go back through it with a highlighter of of one color for for where you were when you were writing it and and so forth, how would how would that break down between your your sofa and, and other areas, and, and both being in Dublin and elsewhere. Why are people obsessed with location and where you're, you know, how, how you're functionally arranged in, in <laughs> space? What? God, God damn difference. The book is in my head, the book is on the screen, and the book is on the page. It's not hugely in the room. Um, you know, I mean, people, some people say, where do you write? And I say, I write on this page that you see these words on. That's where I'm writing now. That is where I write. And if the page is in the car, I might jot it down at traffic lights. I don't write, I'm not location specific, I think. 
and actually that's because, in part, because of the very serious training my, my small children put me through of holding something between writing events. So I do have quite a good uh, system of compartmentalization. I can, you know, drift off while talking to you on this podcast and think about my book, Thank You, which is what I'm working on at the moment. But if I looked at Actress, there, w there was, there was a, 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 an amazing six months where, and it was uh, last year, and I, was, I taught on a Monday in UCD where I teach creative writing, and then on the Tuesday I would be working already. Um, and, and the book had me so caught at that stage, but it took a long time for us to, you know, get into this spiral of death, <laughs> this embrace. <laughs> so it took a long, the long dance, you know, but finally we were clasped, I suppose, and I wrote, I wrote all I could, um, and I wrote every day and I wrote at weekends, and I was more happy than I can tell you. Uh, and I was really happy because I knew that this doesn't happen um, every six months. It happens after a couple of years working at a book um, where a kind of sense of possession uh, begins and you know what you're doing. And it's, you couldn't buy it. It's just amazing. I don't know how many more times I'm going to get it in life. But what you're talking about, your routine and all of that kind of sit in the fucking chair and do your work. No, no, this, no, this, no. The swearing's begun. The podcast has now, has now officially commenced. No, it's exactly no. what I hoped for. I can't, I can't, I can't, you know, like a lot of people who, are aut who work autonomously. Um, it can't be imposed from the outside. So I actually find location a bit more of a difficulty than a pleasure. In a piece uh, that dates from 2008, so I've really delved into the archives here, but you said um, that your time at UEA sort of didn't teach you anything, but you did learn a lot. What were some of the things that you, that you learned about, about novel writing there? Well, um, some of them were, were procedural or about routine, and, and, but, but they were more about, as it were, the hygiene of your mental health, you know, that uh, if you start working at 8 o'clock at night and work through till 4 or 5 in the morning, you may not be entirely sane four months later. If that's, that, was, that was something I knew by the end. But I also knew that putting little note cards all over your room would not invite the book in, even if they were in different colors, and that you might wake up and just look at your wall and think, I don't know what any of this means. Um, I, yeah, I, so, but, so those, those things, which are the kind of things one might tell your children or your students, you know, get a bit of fresh air, go for a walk, all of that. I, you know, I, 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 it was decades before I really properly learned those things, which is to, to stop working when um and organize your head a bit but um what did i learn what did i learn uh i learned uh, or i like i used to like to say i learned about failure but i might I, that might also be a uh, i learned about ambition um i i, I perhaps learned how to fill the gap between the two because at the end of the year i dumped the book you know uh, um, and all my imaginings um, because it was untenable, it didn't exist, it wasn't in any way real. So, um, and, and some people fail to write their first book and then never write their actual first book, or 
they fail on their first book and never put it in a drawer. As we know, so many people took their first book into a drawer after it's been rejected, write a second book, and then they publish the wrong way around. So they'll publish their second book as a debut and then say, oh, by the way, I have this, which uh, this here's something I finished earlier. That's quite a common trope. Um, Could we just, um, coming back to that image of the cards on the wall, with a lot of novelists we've had on on the podcast, we've asked this this question, and the way we've often heard it phrased is whether you're a plotter or a plunger. So are, yeah. are you? I think you may, you've maybe answered this partially already, but are you someone who works out the the narrative structure of a novel before you start broadly, um, in whatever mechanism that can happen, or do you just plunge in and and follow your nose? I'm really not a plunger either, because both of those things uh, uh, there's a presupposition of a pre-existing book. Um, so you, as as though you plunge into it, as though it were you know all all there for the plunging <laughs> into. Whereas I would style it more as a kind of endo and exoskeleton sort of person. Um, I kind of grow it. I grow the book organically. Um, so I grow it from the inside. I grow it from. I don't fill a space. I make the space, um, and. Then there comes a kind of structural moment if you've do, if you've done that for long enough, where you realise what your what your word count is going to be and what your structure is going to be, and then you can start filling it as you might. Then you know you say, okay, I've got ten thousand words in New York, I know that, and you fill those ten thousand words, and that 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 structural moment for me happens about a year or two years in, and I say, okay. That's what the character requires. That's what the book requires. This is where the where the book will hinge, and I use a really bog standard three act structure. I stare at it as though it was you know a hieroglyph of future greatness, and I I go oh yeah okay there's my midpoint. Is there um, a fairly do you, I mean do you take a kind of rigorous approach to editing? I mean in some of the interviews you've talked about the whittling whittling down your word count. Is that something that goes on kind of throughout the whole thing or at the end? Yeah, um, uh, because I don't produce an entire draft until very late in the process. I'm gonna can I I'm gonna donate a, a fiver for every time I say the word process <laughs> to the charity. No, not to the charity of your choice. No, it, <laughs> because where was I? Uh, because you, you, you're just telling us about your process. My process. That's a fiver to the Vincent de Paul here in Ireland. From you. Okay, we all have to give a fiver. Um, so, what was I saying? Because the structure announces itself so late in the process. What was the question again? Ask me again. Sorry. Uh, you were pretty editing. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm pretty tough. I'm pretty tough. So, I find just in, in the way I spent three years maybe in a book and, and the first... Uh, six months of that, I might work really intensely and in a very lapidary uh, fashion, polishing and polishing again the same paragraphs over and over. And I think I'm not pr proceeding, and I, I get very anxious. And I and and it takes me, you know, I'm, I'm I've done it so often now. I realise that what is happening in the back of my head is that all the other things in the book are being slowly coloured in, are slowly happening in somewhere that I don't yet have access to. And I have to start pushing into that word by, by you know, with another couple of paragraphs. But I, I there's a book called The Green Road I wrote, and I spent a really long time circling a paragraph in which the mother cries at a family dinner. 
um, and that it happens in the first part of the book. But I may have spent a month there. And there's a, a, a I wrote the the gathering, uh, which I wrote ten or fifteen. I don't know how long ago. Two thousand and four. I wrote it. I spent maybe two months in the foyer of the Belvedere Hotel, in a scene between two characters in which nothing happens. And uh, and and if and I, I assume I panicked daily on the because I was no further on and nothing was happening but I was drawn I was in absolutely enthralled to these these situations in space these characters in space and I just thought if I could describe it exactly if I could get it absolutely right if I could get the cadences just so then I would know something more and I did I did but a, a, lot, a lot of the time a lot of the panic and a lot of the knowing things are you're just fooling yourself, you know. The trick is to fool yourself into writing rather than fool yourself into abandoning the manuscript. So the, the initial kind of constituents of your process, another five pounds there, are, are paragraphs. Oh, and, you're and, a sterling bonus. And, and, okay. I'm not, <laughs> <I'm> not seen. <laughs> we, when we spoke to Louise a couple of weeks ago, she was talking, I mean, a somewhat similar way of doing it, and that she started with scenes that she would write them, but not have any sense of order or things like that. And then there would be a, a kind of time where she would sit with them all on the floor and work out how they fit it together. But you're you're initially working at a kind of more granular level than that, at the, at the kind of individual paragraph. Yeah, but the paragraph, you know, has sort of silken threads out into space. First of all, into all the other people at that dinner table, and the dinner table is set in a living room and the, beyond the window is the garden and if I get the gesture of the mother wiping the tears away with the heel of her hand all her you know what would popularly be called narcissism is in that gesture uh, right there and how and then she throws her head back and the tears drop, drip three in a row into her hairline and you get her children thinking this is a bit funny now this is a bit of a joke and you get so you, in the in the absolute I suppose granularity are in the, those very those nano details contain you, I interrogate them then to see what they're telling me about the book and the family I, one of the best compliments I got about that book uh, the green road was uh, a pal who said I went back to the first chapter and it's all there and that was to me wonderful because of course it was all there that was where it was packed in at its tightest and then the rest of the book lets it out like a jack-in-the-box you know that's where and the I'm dna spoiling. is that's where the information is that's the dna oh i'm excited now i have something new to say it's the dna the information if we could move on sadly from the question of process um from leaving another fiver um, <laughs> From when you left UEA um, and became a full-time writer in 1993, what did that? You worked in TV in the meantime. Um, I did. How did that? Did that time kind of change your approach to storytelling or and the craft of storytelling? Um, and you yeah. know, what made you want to leave that and become a writer full-time? I was never what you might call a naturalist. I don't think you know. I'm more of a naturalist or a realist now. Um, I, I, I think I was described as a postmodernist when I started out. Remember, remember post. Remember when things were post. Anyway, as opposed to a modernist, uh, all of these things were slightly mysterious to me. I worked in a very fast-moving television show that changed every three and a half minutes, um, and it was 
kind of radical in, in its format in its day and we juxtaposed a lot of different elements. And so my first novel was a series of quick juxtapositions uh, and uh, um, based in the television. Uh, and it never occurred to me that I would write without technology, that I might have somebody walking through a field with the, you know, turning the rain out of the, the grass as his boots walked over. You know what I mean? Whatever rural naturalism or the various other different styles of Irish naturalisms that you might conjure in your head. It never occurred to me that I, I would do any of that. I was an urban, suburban, um, I, I was part of the future rather than of the past already. With, 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 by, by the time I'd left TV, Talking I was a child producer director. I mean, I was in my twenties, so I was one of those young creatives you see running around the place. Talking of leaving leaving TV and, and writing full time, it's a, a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it interacts with people's writing lives. So how how has that one worked for you? How were you able to to go full time, and then how since then has you know, broadly money and matters financial interacted with your your writing career? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no problem talking about money because I think that these uh, various purities that we in, impose on writers, in, uh, especially actually in the Irish uh, setting, where an Irish is, uh, a, a writer is far too uh, elevated or pure or poor or poor to talk about money, and th and that feeds into a lot of mythologies about uh, Irish poetics. Anyway, yeah, how did I do it? First of all, and this is what I say to anyone who wants to leave a full-time job, and I had a good job by the standards of the day, although I was too young to realize what that was. Um, first of all, I say you build a bridge out of your workplace. So you don't go cold turkey. I worked at the weekends, and it took considerable effort, I have to say, in order to write a book of short stories, which was my first publication. So I had... I had been published. The Portable Virgin came out in, I don't know, 1989 or 1990, and I was with Jonathan Cape, and that was a really fantastic first step. So I had that under my belt before I decided to give up the day job. I then started saving and put a deposit on a flat. So we only had the mortgage rather than, you know, so we had somewhere to, we had somewhere to sit cross-legged on the mattress in the corner. <laughs> I did have a desk there, actually. I wrote at a desk there. That was before children. Anyway, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I had a place to live. And after that, I starved. Thanks for asking. The, the One of the turning points, and, and there was an anxious decade, and I wasn't really doing anything great, or it was full of anxiety and full of weird, you know, uh, procrastinations and difficulties. I... I got a fax machine. This is how old I am. I got a fax machine from my husband Martin for some Christmas, maybe, and I could realized I could send little columns off to Radio Four, and I did Radio Four columns, which turned in eighty pounds sterling each for the John Peel show. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I it took it it took um, very late in my writing life before I stopped translating. Um, words written into a shirt on your back or a meal on the table. And I had a freelancer's attitude to money, which is, if I do this, then I can afford that. And this became really critical later when I started, when I had kids. Um, when I had kids, 
I found money was a hugely uh, stressful and useful motivator. Um, and when they were about a year old, they, they, I had to afford childcare in Ireland is astonishingly expensive. And so I would look at a job, say, you could review for this paper or that paper, and say, well, I'll get, so, I'll get that amount of money, for, and I'm a slow writer, for a week's work, and that will pay literally a fifth of what I need to pay my childcare. So you start, you, you have to, I really worked to stay above the poverty line or above the line where I could, above the line, that was, there was a line, it was a really clear line. You have, you earn that amount of money and it, and, and, and you can keep writing. And I don't know how, I mean, I, ugh, when I think back on it, what I put myself through, all of that, all of, all that I was buying, all of that, all of those years was the luxury of writing time. Um, and I appreciate for people who have small children that it takes an astonishing amount of self-belief to say, okay, okay, <laughs> okay, I'm go this is how I'm going to work it. Um, but I had had at that stage a couple of other novels published, so I wasn't doing, I wasn't flying completely by the seat of my pants at that stage. Is that enough about money for you? Do you want more? Will I talk more about <laughs> No, uh, that's enough. I was just going to say that um, I read a, an interview with you where you said that even when you won the Booker in, in 2007 for The Gathering, you, know, you were working all the time to pay the bills. A sort of recurring theme of um, the podcast is the importance of winning prizes either for making you unsackable if you're a journalist or, you know, for giving you more uh, power in bargaining for advances, you know, if you're a novelist. Did you find that to be the case? Well, yeah, no, I mean, the, the Booker was a sea change in my, in, in, in my financial circumstances, yeah. Um, and uh, it also was a job in itself for a while. Um, so it took me away from the desk for maybe a year or a year or two. Um, because you were touring and talking. Yeah, and stuff like yeah, that. There, was, there, was, there was a year of getting on planes and stuff and I didn't realize how, and I, I don't know, well, I couldn't turn anything down really because I'd spent so, so long, I suppose, before that not getting on the planes. So I, I was, um, um, and again, my husband said, just do, do, don't have any regrets. I suppose the only regret I have is that I don't have any regrets. I should have stayed at home and written more books. I don't know. Take, it took me a while to get my head back. Um, but the, the booker makes you anomalous to a great, to a great degree. When I'm talking to my, to younger writers or to people who might be listening to this podcast, for example, who want to see a way into making their life uh, as writers feasible, I can't just say, well, what you have to do is win the booker and then it'll be all right. You know, that, 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 I, it, is, it is an anomaly in a writer's life to have something like that land, you know. And can we talk about being an Irish writer? Um, and, you know, I, I like this quote that you said that at one stage your relationship to the Irish literary scene was like a salad being, being on the edge of it. But I was also wondering, do you feel it's different being an Irish writer in Ireland than a writer from Ireland who's elsewhere? Because we, we had Colin McCann on the show a few weeks ago who you know, has lived in the US for 20 years, made his, his world there, teaches there, but still very much regarded himself as an Irish writer. Do you feel, and I suppose the other thing I, I was thinking about that, and it's, it's in non-fiction rather than fiction, but the way that 
Patrick Radan Keith, the New Yorker writer who just did this big book about the troubles in Northern Ireland, was kind of able to do that because he was of Irish descent, but he was an outsider coming back in. I mean, does it? Do you feel that it matters that you live in Ireland as well as that you're from Ireland? Yeah, well, we're all, you know, we had been, I suppose, in the last 10, 15 years, very, very mobile. And a lot of Irish uh, writing comes from desks or floors or whatever that are outside of Ireland. Um, there are there are various kind of tides um, that pull the writer away, one towards America, I suppose, and the other towards the UK. Um, I stayed at home and um, not not hugely by by happenstance, you might say, rather than by any kind of great decision. And um, so I think uh, that that's a it's a really complicated question because of the marketability of Irishness in international markets. Um, there and and there is an interplay between um, the 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 culture, the very hot and interesting and local, and very vibrant uh, local writing culture, and then that kind of broader circumference as as Irish writing disseminates wider, um, and that tension has been useful to me, except well not the tension has been useful rather than anything else because. I tend to undercut Irish ideas of Irishness uh, rather than remake them. I'm more of an undoer than a doer when it comes to Irishness. And, and one of the reasons I was like that was because I think that you know national stories and mythologies ossify over time, they become trite, they become really, they become slightly plastic, you know. Uh, so you have to renew them again from, from, from the inside. Uh, that said, you know, there's un, an unavoidability about where you're from, you don't really choose it, you don't necessarily, you can choose your accent, I suppose you can change your accent. But it's a bit of a push-me-pull-you up all round really. As someone who originally hails from Manchester I get accused of poshing up my voice all the time. Um, <laughs> what are some of the sort of myths about Ireland that you seek to unpick? Um, well I don't know actually Actress is full of myths of all kinds of different types of myths and mythologies not all of the mainstream you know, when, when the, you, Catherine O'Dell is the main character and actress is a legendary Irish accent and actor and she develops uh, 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 and grows her own legendary Irish accent. She talks a bit like that. Um, and that was uh, something that was recognised and it was, it was a, a, an, an interesting... Was an, she saw herself as a rebel and a romantic, so it was quite a, a, an artistic and poetic and lyricised branding event, if you would call it branding. And it turns into a kind of tourist event by the end of the book, where she ends up doing um, an ad for butter. Can we talk with actress about the process of writing that against the unfolding Harvey Weinstein? It's another five pounds. 
Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's racking well, up. Yeah. Um, yeah, the experience of writing actress against the unfolding Me Too movement and the allegations against Harvey Weinstein. That you you started in twenty sixteen before this came out. How did how did all that stuff going on in the outside world and the revelations about what really was going on with actresses and the casting couch and so forth? How did that affect the the building of this book? I suppose one of your ambitions. Or one of my, I mean, there are two types of writers. One who says, I, I, I do not look around me at the world, you know, that I sit in a room and I am solitary and events in the world do not, do not, do not concern me because of my high endeavor here. And there is the other writer who says, this is of the world, but, you know, that it, it, it might be a political or a polemical writer, or, you know, and, and, and so one of the challenges is to keep polemics and ideology out of, out of your work because for me I, I like to work very close to what happens rather than what we think about what happens um, on the other hand I think it's the only way to last in, through a lifetime's work is to leave yourself open to the times and somehow artists who leave themselves open to the times they live in are the ones I respect most rather than those who close themselves off from the times um, so I was interested in this subject before it became uh, mainstream. Um, I, I, when you say mainstream, before it became, you know, launched on Twitter, before it became, it went into what the Americans now call the public square. And when all of that happened in September 2017 with, with the Weinstein article, I realized that I would have to recalibrate my book because so much was known that I had been thinking of writing about. And what did that recalibration first, involve? Well, first of all, I felt robbed. I, I thought, oh my God, now my story is stolen, <laughs> <laughs> which is a hugely selfish and egotistical artistic response to any, you know, it's like Joyce complaining about the Second World War because it interfered with the publication of Finnegan's Wake. But um, <laughs> of all the things, so first of all, I felt a little bit robbed, as though, you know, this is my idea. Why, why, why was the world taking it from me? Which is a great joke, because it's so egotistical. On the other hand, I realized that a lot of the work of exposition had been done by the newspapers and by people talking online, um, and most profoundly by the mosaic of personal experiences that had been delivered online. And so, suddenly I had a huge amount of research done for me right there um, and a huge sort of resource one way or the other. Though when it came to the scenes about more or less involving ideas of consent in the book, I had to work out them, I had to try and remember what it was like before me too and what somebody involved in those situations might, how they might be considered in the old days. And that was really a challenge to get your mind back into that mindset and not be anachronistic. Uh, and the solution, of course, was to say very much in the body of, of, of the protagonist. However, um, yeah, it, once, the, once, the, once, the, once it's out of the box, you can't get it back in again. Once the Me Too movement happened, I think a lot of future literature just altered like whoosh, uh, like a time moment in Star Trek. It's a vortex. <laughs> you've, you've previously said that with each novel, you're solving a problem. Is that, is that, are you referring to a kind of 
exterior problem writing in a polemic fashion, or are you trying to to resolve an issue in your own mind or in your own in your kind of head? And how how does that relate to actress as well? Did you yeah. did you feel you were trying to like the latter? Now, and, and I and I haven't really answered the question about. Actress, I remember at the end of The Green Road thinking, now I know what the problem was. The problem was something about compassion. Though as I framed it on the way through, I thought it was something about narcissism and something about coldness or dismissiveness. Um, uh, uh, and how, how what, what the gap in that family's heart was, you know. I said, oh, of course, it's about attention, it's about compassion. And I got there by the last the last page. And once I had the last page, I kind of knew what, what the book had been about prior to that. Um, what the question was I was trying to answer. So maybe a book is trying to frame a question rather than answer it. I haven't really uh, considered actress in those terms. I'll have to, sorry, I have to think um, what the question is. I suppose it might be something about possession and elusiveness. That although, you know, when, when, when the young student, at the beginning of the book, a young student called Holly, Holly Devan knocks at Nora's door, Nora is the writer of the book, and says, what was your mother like? And I want to write a big book about her and, and all about, you know, style her as a, you know, her, her sexual style, she's interested in, <laughs> in, a, in a feminist sort of way, um, in a post-gender post sort of way. And, and it seems to to Nora that this is anachronistic as a way of describing her mother, but also she says, well, when she says, what was she like? She says she was mine. And then she decides to write the book herself and have her mother or show her mother or give her mother to the world. And of course she does nothing of the sort. By the end of the book, her mother still is Nora's, but she's not really the reader's one way or the other. I really enjoyed the, um, the performative details in the book, um, particularly there's, there's a line about uh, Catherine wearing a Chanel suit for the six o'clock, ready for the six o'clock news, I think it was. Um, but in terms of doing the research, I mean, you mentioned uh, the fact that journalists... Chanel, or probably Chanel. There you I do. don't know if it was actually <laughs> Chanel. All, all her clothes are, are qualified. There's a maybe Dior, and I think she's, you know, she definitely wears a Hermes scarf. It's not, you know, but there's, uh, there's they're, they're never, they're never... I have pictures of a lot of those, uh, that gear on my on my cork board, a kind of digital cork board, I look through for the for the right item of clothing and then I describe it afterwards. Well, anyway, that, go fits that fits me with my question actually, because I was going to ask about, about research, um, because you, you mentioned that uh, you know, journalists delivered epic and a lot of backstory and other real stories that were, were helpful to you, but um, I wondered if you were sort of drawing on, on any real people real actresses. I mean, the cover features Carrie Fisher watching Debbie Reynolds from, from The Wings as yeah. a child. Yeah, uh, well, there are any number of them. Um, there was Maureen O'Hara, there was a who went from middle-class Ralph Mines to Hollywood and and survived Hollywood quite well, in part because of her, her middle-class stability, there was something about her. Um, yeah, Maureen O'Hara would have been one of them. Um, there was a, a, a very, very beautiful girl called Constance Smith who went, who won a beauty contest in Limerick and went to Hollywood. And she subsequently, in, in 1962, she stabbed her boyfriend and then married him afterwards. Um, I came across this ghastly, horrible boy website saying, where are, uh, detailing all the starlets who went mad. 
and it was it was very salacious or prurient or something like, oh, look, she's so gorgeous. But in fact, she went off and killed so-and-so and killed. And so there were about seven of these women who had engaged in violent, in violent acts, as, as Catherine O'Dell does in the book. And you kind of think, well, what is that mix? You know, you, you've got the, 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 the hugeness of being in Hollywood and the sense of entitlement that might bring. Why do these women in particular attack their uh, p potentially abusive um, um, relationships, you know, their boyfriends or whatever, when there's very little of that compared, you know, if you weight how much things, how many things happen to women and how many things women do back. There's very little, it, is, it, it has been historically very weighted um, in one way. And so these, these interesting seven women did stuff one assumes back. To come back to your uh, process again, I will pay the fine. But with with the research you're doing with these looking, you know, looking at this website or at historical examples and so forth, when when are you doing that? Because again, we we discussed this with a number of novelists, and Ian Rankin gave an interesting assessment of it. He said that when he started out, he used to do the research at the beginning, and then he realised that was a trap because you would spend you know, a lot of time looking at something, he gave the example of a blood test or something like that, that, yeah. that you would then end up on the cutting room floor that wouldn't make it into the novel. And he said, you know, what he would move to doing would be producing a draft and then doing the research afterwards so that he knew what he needed. How, maybe again using the example of actress, how did you walk that one? Yeah, well, there's no point in, 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 in deeply researching a sentence that isn't going to make it into the book. And I, and I, I really see what you mean, uh, what Ian Rankin means by that. Um, I now would divide my research into two phases. One would be, uh, I, many years ago, I wrote a book called The Pleasure of Eliza Lynch. And there were only four books about this woman. She was a real woman in 1854 in Paris who went off and married a dictator uh, in Paraguay. Or didn't marry him. Oh. That was the big deal. She didn't marry the dictator of Paraguay, of all the things to do with the dictator of Paraguay at the time. Not marrying him was the most critical in her point case because it it, it, it led to questions about her morals. But anyway, so uh, there were only four books written about her. I read one of them at least, and I thought halfway through it, no, this is wrong, this is wrong. So I start, the moment we push back against the research and start claiming the subject for your own is an interesting one, and it is a very writerly one, I think. Um, but research isn't structure, and research is not story. So you start writing your story, and as you get older as a writer or more weathered in, you start writing the story earlier in your research process earlier and earlier. Sometimes you might start the story without researching it at all. And you will then go back and research it as it were, line by line. One thing I did with Actress was that I trusted my instinct on the fly as to, particularly when I was writing the, the, the different plays and films, the little plots in the book that would typify that that she she that she went through that she acted in that Catherine O'Dell acted in, and so I have a, a, a film there called Mulligan's Holy War, which is set after the Second World War, and I went back and I looked at the films in 1952 and the ones in 1951 and the ones in 1950 to see when was the peak of this kind of war film, and was I off was I off being? It's amazing how right I often was. And the, attractive, I, the attractive nun genre. 
the the attractive nun genre because of course I was going back to nuns I have known on screen <laughs> through the years so, so and an amount of that knowledge lodges somewhere that you'll never find and then you go online and you go oh yeah okay it's good it's good it's good to go the, uh, the, there are things though that can't that you have to undo your research for or you have to know at the very beginning of the book, there's a party and Catherine wears black and her daughter says it was the 70s and no one wore black. Uh, and it, that is true of the 70s, you would not wear black and vintage was only used for cars. Second-hand clothes were not <laughs> a thing. So you can research all you like and you won't get that doubling over or that fold over of history and, and um, cause history doesn't happen all at once, if you know what I mean. <laughs> You know, if we're, if we're wearing vintage clothing now, that, that's a contemporary thing that involves the past. And that is a, that's a relationship. It's not a linearity. We started off asking about your experience at um, UEA. Um, but you, you teach now, UCD. I do. What's it like being on the other side of that fence? What are you, what's your approach to doing that? Yeah, uh, 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 well, you were asking me about rewriting, and I was being very coy because I'm such a... I'm so tough on my own rewriting process and I'm so tough on my not tough on my sentences I love to do a good goddamn sentence that is my you know that's my aim to get done before lunch you know <laughs> like if I can make the sentence work on its own terms so what I do as a teacher is something I realize only slowly now because I'm only a few years into it but I'm beginning to realize it's kind of terrifying I look at people's sentences um, I was told to a student the other day, and I said, well, let's look at this sentence. And I saw a kind of flinch, <laughs> you're doing it virtually on the phone. I said, no, 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 this isn't a criticism of the sentence. I just want to alert you to what I see your sentence doing here. Of course, your sentence did many amazing things, clause by clause. It went here, and it gathered up that, and, you know, it involved his mother. And, the, and, and, and it's really stunning how much you can get into your own into a small amount of prose, how much inflection and nuance there is in every choice of word. Then there was a bit of a wobble or a bit of a syntactical interest towards the end of the sentence. And I said, well, here is now you've got, you know, a bit of a tautology or repetition. And, and, I, and then I sort of pick away at that to see what it might be. I'm a, I'm a real believer in looking at your own work to see what it's telling you. So that if you look at your first page, you will, you, your book is in there. It's the DNA again. Your, your book is in there. You just have to find it. And you're not going to find it from the teacher inspiring you with, you know, let's all look up at the lampshade. Is that, is that what inspiration is? Everybody looks up and we have, you know, 60 books about ceilings. I don't know, or the sky. Anyway, I look down at the text. And students find this really difficult. And I am really interested as I look around a workshop at people who aren't looking at their page and who are talking about something that isn't actually on the page. And I say, okay, well, let's look at the page. And it's like, I'm melting, I'm melting. <laughs> it's like, no, don't look at the page. Don't look at the page. Um, and there is no other place. There is no other place. And so I can offer false places I can say I can build mansions for people to live in in their heads as a teacher but I don't I look at their I look at their page are you sufficiently frightened <laughs> <laughs>
Is it that does a frightening sound, It does sound quite frightening. <laughs> is it? Is it? Is it? You see, I really think I should be, I, I think I have to, you know, work my pedagogy a bit more to, I don't know, reassure. What do people, what do the students want? You just give me a little list there and I'll do it all. Reassure, inspire. Inspire is a word that bothers me endlessly. Uh, the students, what uh, stage are they at? Are they undergraduates or are they on a specific No, no, I'm with postgraduates, uh, postgraduates. And I think what I en enjoy most, although it's a bit of a luxury and I don't get to do it all the time, is I really enjoy working on the MA and MFA thesis that people have towards the end of their year. So we're working on a longer book or a text. And I can really, I can also, I think I have the skill set to do that. I mean. But I can say, okay, you've got 50,000 words. Where are we in this? Um, so that's, it's very practical what I do, I think. So when you, when you do one of these projects, you're looking, do you help with structural stuff? Or is it, as you say, the sort of minute micro, micro Yeah, stuff? no, I do. I mean, I really do look at structure. It's very hard to talk about structure in the abstract. So if you're, if you're dealing with students who only have got like three pages, it's very difficult for them to grasp what a structure might be. But when you're with people who have more, more work in hand, you can start to really work ideas about structure. Um, and I very much enjoy that. And I, I know what 70,000 words is. I know what 3,000 words is. I have an instinct for that. And I want that somehow to, to happen in the student's head. We're coming. But you know, I never mind what they write. I'm, 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 I have, and I'm beginning to think that I'm kind of a little old-fashioned in that I welcome work that is transgressive. I welcome uh, all different kinds and styles of work. I have no moral or value judgment on what the, what the, what the work is. I'm not brilliant on fantasy fiction. Do you know what I mean? But within the broadness of literary fiction, I don't have any, I want more, not, I want them to, to follow their nose, put it that way. I don't say you can't do that. We're coming towards the end of our time. I know this is a bit of a, maybe a can of worms to open with, with only five or so minutes left, but we, you've spoken quite a lot about the way that women's writing is perceived and that, you know, the differences between the way that work by men and, and women is, is, is looked at. Do you feel that that's something where the situation is changing or do you think this is a, this is a kind of entrenched, entrenched problem? Well, um, it depends on where you're talking. Uh, when I was talking about that, I was a laureate for Irish fiction and I had a kind of civic responsibility to look at the Irish scene. And the Irish scene has just sort of coasted for so long on, on great international reputations um, that it hasn't actually looked at what its own biases and, and, and configurations were. And so the situation that I looked at in 2013 in terms of reviewing uh, statistics, really not, not just terrible, but it was so unwitting. Um, and once you start seeing it, it, you just can't stop seeing it. And, 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 and some of the denials were really interestingly tormented in how, how a male biased scene wriggles out of um, reading female work, put it that way, simply. Um, but th that is not the case. Uh, but if you looked at the critical cultures of various papers in the UK, you would find them radically different from newspaper to newspaper. Um, and there are newspapers around who have a kind of stable of clever, clever, clever unhappy men. <laughs> and if 
a woman produces a book, they have, uh, you know, three phone numbers of clever, unhappy men to take it down. And there just isn't the same. There aren't three clever, unhappy women on the scene who will savage somebody, some man's book just because it's written by a man. So there are little corners of misogynistic practice alive and thriving, I think, in, in, any, in any country. Uh, but broadly speaking, the UK is, 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 is very friendly towards female work. The thing is, and it may have been that it was getting to a critical mass, it is incontrovertible how uh, confident and successful on so many different levels a lot of uh, fiction by women is today. So it's almost game over, you know. So you, 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 I begin to wonder whether these little corners of re retrenchment aren't a defensive, you know, a backlash before, before the, the, the success was acknowledged. Well, on that optimistic, mostly, note, um, thank you so much, Anne, for your time and for bearing with us with all the technological tips and tricks and all of that. Um, it's, been, it's been great talking to you. Great to talk to you too. And tech is where we're at. You know, I can do, we're all tech-tastic now in these difficult times. Thank you so much, Anne. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. So, Simon, what did you make of our interview with Anne? I enjoyed it. Again, we did it remotely, so we didn't uh, have a sense of, of her in person. But I was, was very struck by, by her... Um, her claim not yet not to use a desk not really to have a routine um suggesting she had her work in a kind of very free form and open-ended way i was a little bit skeptical about that i thought um i think that you know she's clearly extremely accomplished in what she's doing and was perhaps uh maybe gilding it a little bit but i, I don't know what did you think rachel yeah, I thought she was a hilarious guest. I mean, I haven't counted how many times we said process, but we are making a hefty donation to a charity of our choice. Yeah, um, yeah I thought she was um, she was great value and um, really interesting that she, I mean, she got something from the creative writing program, but, you know, not what you'd necessarily say, she wouldn't necessarily call it a success, um, which I thought was an interesting perspective and, and a bit different to what other writers and novelists on the show have said. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've been having, uh, well, we're sort of midway through it with, with Anne, but a, a streak of really interesting contemporary novelists on the show, which is great and really interesting to see what they're, they're doing at the forefront of their game. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Acom. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Katie Lee. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes, at, on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Patreon at Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.